Hello everyone and welcome to another Charity Chat podcast. My name is Osman Mughal. Today I'm speaking with Siobhan Koraya, Head of Inclusion at Action for Children. In this conversation, we discuss what is meant by equity, diversity and inclusion in the workplace. The importance of language and terminology when we discuss this topic with colleagues within our organizations and our sector and what measures can organizations put in place to achieve a genuine cultural shift in their EDI practice. We also touch on tokenism, the impact of COVID-19 and discuss what areas we need to work on together to ensure we are an example of best practice. Given the values of our sector, given what we stand for and the individuals that we are proud to serve, we should be the leaders in this conversation. I understand this topic is a sensitive one and the purpose of this discussion is to help open up a positive and constructive platform to ensure that as a sector, as organisations and as individuals, we are doing all we can to ensure genuine equity, diversity and inclusion in the workplace. As leading organisations in our sector, such as the Institute of Fundraising and Charity So White have made clear over recent years, we must deal with this hugely important topic now, because the decisions we make now will affect the sector for years to come, as well as the individuals who we serve. I hope that you find this conversation useful and insightful and we welcome your thoughts and comments. Hi Siobhan, how are you doing? How's lockdown going? Yeah, great, not too bad. Um, we're still in um, quite significant lockdown in Wales, but all pretty good, the sun's shining. Great. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on Siobhan, and thank you so much for taking the time out. I'm really looking forward to this discussion because a poignant moment to discuss this topic with what's gone on in recent weeks around the world. And while the context of this discussion is going to be different than other countries around the world, I think, and I'm sure you'll agree, that we must be mindful of the wider debates and conversations in this area of work. And we need to understand that they are too part of the wider conversation around this topic. And I've known you a little while now, Siobhan, and you're an incredibly passionate advocate for genuine equity, diversity and inclusion in our sector. And I know that you've had such an interesting and varied career. So it'd be great if you can share a little bit more about that. So the roles that you've held and how you became interested in equity, diversity and inclusion work. Okay, so um, I started my career working in the youth offending service. Um, so I initially started working with children and young people who were um, uh, at the very beginning of the, of the criminal justice system. So um, bail support, um, appropriate adult duties in the police station. Um, and then after a few years, then I moved into working with children um, who were subject to a, a youth offending intervention. Um, so I was in that role for about eight years, during which time I did my social work degree. Um, and then I moved over to um, social work, working with looked after children. Um, and then I stood for election, local election in 2012, and I was elected um, on my first attempt for the area in which I live. 
Um, and during that period, I was cabinet member for children's services in Cardiff, and I was chair of the children's um, scrutiny committee as well, so had two senior roles. Um, but I experienced quite a lot of sexism um, in, that, in that role. Um, I don't really fit the stereotype of being a, a counsellor in Wales. Um, so I decided that I was using a lot of my energy um, on internal battles um, rather than actually helping people. Um, so I resigned that post after two and a half years, um, by which time I'd started with Action for Children. Um, and I guess this role, Head of Inclusion, was the dream job for me because I could um, talk about inclusion and diversity and indirectly improve outcomes for children and young people by supporting staff in the workplace. Um, so I've been here since 2014. Um, and then in my spare time, I am a mother to two, child, two teenage kids and a sausage dog. Um, and I do some voluntary work for the UK Sepsis Trust, so awareness raising, raising money, um, and I'm a trustee on a youth participation board in Cardiff as well. Um, so in some way or another, for many years, I've worked directly and indirectly with children. I guess my interest in um, diversity and inclusion work probably stemmed from quite an early age because my dad's a trade unionist. Um, so, you know, often knew about him going to picket lines and to meetings and being on strike. Um, uh, you know, in the 80s, that was quite prevalent in, in South Wales. Um, so I guess always had instilled in me, not drilled into me, but I just picked up on it really, um, just something around fairness and, and equity, I guess, for people. Brilliant. Thank you for sharing that, Siobhan. And I just wanted to um, ask you about your experiences. How did that affect you and how has that shaped you in terms of your crim, you know, at Action for Children and the way you think about equity, diversity and inclusion work? Yeah, it's a really good question and something that I've probably reflected on quite a lot. Um, I guess when I was um, a local councillor, it felt like, you know, the internal battles, it was really, really hard and it was really, really emotional. Um, and there were times during that when I thought, this is the best thing I've ever done and the worst thing I've ever done. And there were, you know, more than one occasions when I thought I was probably having a some sort of breakdown. Um, but what it really put me um, in the position of was understanding how it feels when you don't fit the stereotype, how people perceive you, how they treat you, how they behave around you. And I guess from a gender point of view, really about um, what people expected of me. So, you know, they expected me because I guess the way I look and, and present, they wanted me to be a woman in politics and to sit in the corner and to flutter my eyelashes um, and to make up the quota. Um, and I, that was never on my radar. So, you know, I never considered that as, as, as something that I should be doing. So when I would challenge and ask questions, then that was seen as being disruptive. It was seen as causing trouble. Whereas, you know, trained as a social worker, you absolutely have to be confident that you're making the right decisions on behalf of other people. And you do that by questioning and asking and, and, and um, assessing, really. Um, so, yeah, it was it was the best and the worst time of my life, but it gave me a, a good understanding of, of what it feels like to feel excluded, really. And it's a shame that sitting here having this conversation in 2020, 
you think how many more of these conversations do we need to have until people change, their views change. And I think partly why we're having this conversation is to advance the debate and move the debate a bit forward as well. Yeah. Before we get into any meaningful conversation about EDI, I think it's vital that we define what we mean by it. There's so many definitions out there and EDI, equity, diversity and inclusion, to many people means different things. By defining it, it allows us to contextualise the debate So how would you define equality, diversity and inclusion from your experiences? And what would you say is the difference between equality and equity? Because I know there is a crucial difference. Okay, so I guess only within the last couple of years, I've realised when I've been going out to different areas of the organisation and talking about equality, diversity and inclusion, that actually I was assuming people knew the definition And what I've realised is I've had to incorporate into my work right at the very beginning of the presentation, this is a, what do you think equality is? What do you think diversity is? What do you think inclusion is? Because they're terms that we use regularly and interchangeably. Unless we really know what they mean, it becomes meaningless. And I think that's when people push things to the side because it's too hard to do stuff. So the way I talk about equality is really around, um, you know, using the Equality Act within the workplace that, you know, the Equality Act 2010 has the nine protected characteristics and, you know, it is a legal requirement that you don't treat people differently based on a protected characteristic or a perception of of a protected characteristic. So equality in that sense for me is really around the legalities and the requirements within the workplace. Diversity then is really around basically you have lots of different people, lots of different backgrounds. It's not just about the protected characteristics, it's about the uniqueness that people have um, and that's diversity. And then inclusion really is, I mean, it sounds so simple, but it really is about what you do to make sure all of those different people within your teams or your organisation feel included and you understand the things that can make people feel excluded. In terms of equity, um, which is a much more interesting term, I feel um, that we need to talk about a lot more. It's really around I guess, trying to understand and give people what they need to be able to, for them to reach their full potential and to have the most sort of full and and healthy life. So it's a lot deeper in terms of understanding um, what makes up a person and how you, um, I guess, adjust things um, to make sure that you're enabling them to reach their full potential. I was doing a bit of research about equality, diversity and inclusion. And when I came across a definition of inclusion, I found it really interesting. So it reads, every person's voice adds value and no Mm -hmm. one person should be called upon to represent an entire community. Yes. And I trust when I read that. As a member of, quote unquote, the BAME community, you're asked to represent an entire community knowing that that community is so different and has so many different views and you're expected to come up with a one-size-fits-all approach Mm -hmm. and it doesn't take into account the huge differences unique parts of each other's communities and part of this debate is understanding that and making sure everybody is aware of that would you agree yeah, so I think we're, we're in a position now where we've talked about quality, diversity and inclusion in organisations for 
a few years. But you're right, we're, we're applying a broad definition to very complex and interesting groups. And I don't think organisations are anywhere near being able to look into more detail around exactly what you said. So it's, I think we're still so far away from being able to say, you know, BAME people are not all exactly the same because, you know, organisations, they apply a one size fits all to absolutely everything. Um, and, and that's where we need a much deeper thinking about people, not about groups of people. Um, you know, and that takes resource, that takes time, that takes the leadership to understand that. Um, and I just think we're so far away from that. But ideally, that is where we would be having that understanding. Absolutely. And I just want to stick um, on this topic of language for a moment. And how helpful or unhelpful certain terms are. Mm -hmm. so, let's stick with the example of the BAME community um, in this instance. In, in my opinion, and it would be really good to get your opinion on this, I don't think it's an accurate or useful characterization of people or communities. And although it may be well-intentioned, I think the term does a huge disservice to this whole conversation because it lacks nuance. Yeah. How can we hand and heart say that we can treat a group of people as one group? Um, mm -hmm. And we know in society that's not the case. But then the question becomes, how do you replace it? What do we replace it with? And do we need to replace it? Yeah. So I think the sort of the first step is giving people a voice and the space to be able to talk about these things. So, you know, we've got the Breakthrough Group, which is our network in action for children to talk about race and ethnicity issues. Um, and we have actually discussed that in the past, right at the beginning around actually, you know, what do we call the network? And some people were very anti calling it a Bain network, whereas other people, they, they you know, they, they weren't that bothered, it didn't, they, they didn't mind. Um, but it is something that needs to be revisited. But I think the first step is, is giving people that safe space to be able to discuss it and also having, um, I guess, the support of others within the organisation. So when we're looking maybe at changing the definitions or thinking about different ways of talking about it, it's not just a shock. It hasn't come from anywhere. Everybody, is already, everybody already knows these conversations are taking place and the, and the reason why they're taking place. So it's not just a term. It's not just an acronym. It's about actually, you know, what are we actually saying when we're talking about being people? Effectively, we're saying anybody who is not white um, that's effectively what we're saying isn't it um, and, and, that, and that's just basically saying you're either white or you're not white and that's where the, the conversation needs to move on at a pace um, you know we're not even at the, at the stage at the moment I don't think in, in my experience where people fully understand the challenges that I'll say BAME because that's the, the, the term that we use in, in Action with Children but the, the, the broad challenges um, that people face. So, you know, just an example, some people on Facebook the other day, um, oh, you know, UK is not as racist as, as, as the US, you know, we're, it's not that bad. And I went back to him, I was like, but you're a white man. So how do you know that? You don't know what it's like to be a black man walking down the street and to be approached by the police. So who are you to, 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 to be saying that? You, you know, you have no place saying that. Um, 
so ideally that's where we'd be that there's a lot of work to do in between and there will be a lot and lot of challenge but that doesn't mean that the challenge is too big because you know the more people the more voices that you've got the more that you can carry things on i think absolutely and i've been at action for children a year and a half now and i think you've done a fantastic job with the breakthrough group but also mm-hmm. your wider work at action for children pushing the agenda and i think when you mentioned the difference between the uk and the us i alluded alluded to it earlier at the beginning of the conversation but there is a difference between explicit and implicit racism or bias mm-hmm. many yeah. would argue that in the US it's a lot more explicit or has been mm-hmm. historically a lot more explicit whereas in Britain today you wouldn't necessarily say on the whole at least that racism or bias is explicit in the same way it is in the US however in Britain it's more implicit and, mm-hmm. and, and in many ways it's probably harder to root out therefore um, because yeah. Is if it's implicit, it can be interpreted on many different levels. And as a Bay member of the community, and I use that term loosely, how do you prove that you've received certain treatment because you're BAME or because you're a female um, or you're BAME and a female? It's a lot more difficult to root out. I agree with you. I think that, um, from my opinion, from what I've seen, racism in the UK is structural, institutional, and in some respects can be very, very subtle because the people that hold the power are not being. So actually, there isn't the, you know, there aren't the voices around the table to, to challenge sometimes some of the behaviour and the decision making. Um, but I think that the sort of the 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 subtle racism that happens in terms of behaviour and um, cultures within an organisation is much more difficult to, to um, pinpoint because the emphasis is always on the person who's experiencing it to be able to evidence it, which in itself is a massive task, rather than the organisations from the top right the way through the organisation having the policies and the processes and the systems in place to ensure that everybody who is employed absolutely lives the values of, of inclusion. Um, and that's where I think it needs to start. And that starts with leadership and modeling the behavior. Um, and I guess that's where roles like mine sometimes are um, difficult because you're not, I'm not a senior, I'm not a senior, senior member of staff. I'm not around the big decision-making table. Um, I'm somewhere in the middle, which means do I spend my time influencing those above me or do I spend it undertaking activity that supports people who are my peers and, and, and I guess lower down in, in the structure really. Um, and that's the sort of, um, that's the challenge in terms of where you focus your time and how you make the impact. How do we genuinely encourage every part of the organisation to talk about these issues openly and confidently without being accused of bias or quote-unquote racism or any other term? Because there are many white uh, members of our sector who are genuinely passionate about this topic and would like to see change going forward. Mm -hmm. There are men in this sector who want to see women at all levels of leadership because they know it makes 
sense for the organization for society etc but how did they get involved in the discussions and conversations around edi because it's so important it can't just be for the group it's affecting i.e bame or you know females or whatever it must be for the entire organization and the entire sector to speak openly openly and confidently about these subjects how do we ensure that really happens i guess you've got to ensure you've got um structures in place to allow that to happen so one of the examples would be at action for children we have um, the diversity and advisory, um, the diversity and inclusion advisory group, which is chaired by um, one of our senior managers, and the group consists of basically inclusion leads from across the organisation. So every department has a lead that then attends the group, discusses sort of um, you know progress of the equality and diversity strategy, but also the the, the point of it is to be able to give people a voice. So say, for example, if you're an inclusion lead, you say to your team or your directorate, um, you know, I've got this meeting, come to me confidentially around things that are happening within the organisation. That's then discussed at the group. It's then fed straight into the executive leadership team. So there is a process to be enabled to have your voice heard and to, um, I guess, <clears throat> raise any issues or any patterns of behaviour or anything like that. The problem with that is when you've given it to the executive leadership team, what happens next? So unless there is a commitment to, to actively um, respond and put in place um, systems to address this sort of stuff, um, you know, that's where it's going to fall down. It, it's good giving people a voice, but it's got to be two way. There's always got to be something coming back from, from the senior leaders, really. Absolutely. It can't just be a top-down approach. It has to involve no. the whole organisation. I want to move on the topic of COVID-19. I think that's on everyone's mind at the moment. And we know research has, in the last couple of weeks, made clear that, for example, the BAME community are four times more likely to contract COVID-19 due to um, things like health inequalities in society that we see. My question is, why is it so important that we embed a comprehensive EDI strategy within organisations at this moment while we're going through a pandemic? And how can we achieve this? Yeah, I think that a pandemic is the perfect example to show whether or not you have diversity and inclusion embedded in your organisation. Um, and I don't for one minute think that there are many, many organisations who have, have, have achieved this. But the way I look at it is like, right, OK, so you have a pandemic, you know it's around, you need a, a strategy around that, you need a COVID-19 strategy. But within that, you need an inclusion lens. So you need somebody to be able to say, you know, at every part of that strategy, everything you're doing, but what about people with a disability? What about people from different ethnicities? Who's going to be affected more? What are we actively putting in place to make sure that we're mitigating any of the additional risks that some of our staff get? And that's where the challenge is and where we'll see that it's, it won't be discussed in the project uh, meetings. It will usually be an add-on when somebody raises it. Um, so that is it's a great example where EDI, diversity inclusion, must be at planning stage as much as possible so that the further along you get in the strategy, you're picking up at every single 
um, point within that, you know, the extra additional risks for people such as COVID-19 and, and race and ethnicity. And I think in this conversation, we've touched on the BAME um, community, we've touched on um, gender, but I think it, it, it's wider than that, isn't it, the EDI conversation. So it's, yes, it's about race, ethnicity, gender, but it's also about disability, sexual orientation, gender identity, national origin, socioeconomic status, a really wide conversation to be had. And one of the questions I had for you that I think you're one of the, the best people to give an answer and your insight into this, I'm really interested in what you, what you say, is how do we ensure that organisations are not just being tokenistic? Surely, in order to achieve long-lasting change in our sector, we need to have a cultural shift within our sector. In our sector, there is a great irony. We are tasked with the responsibility as a sector to uphold and empower disadvantaged communities, quote-unquote disadvantaged communities, to ensure that as much as possible there is true equity, diversity and inclusion. However, in the same breath, organisations as a whole in our sector, not talking about any particular organisation, but as a, as a sector, we have so much work to do when it comes to EDI. And I think that's something that we have to tackle head on and be very open and honest about it and stop kicking the football down the road, so to speak. COVID-19 has fast-tracked these issues into more prominent debates that we've seen over the last month or two. So my question to you is, how do we ensure that organisations are not being tokenistic and, and ensuring that there is a genuine cultural shift? Yeah, so I guess just going back to what you said about the different characteristics, and it's obviously not just race and ethnicity, it's, it's all everything else. And, and what we need to be alert to as well is changing circumstances for people. So, you know, how a pandemic, for example, might, you know, you might become a carer or, or, or you know, something might change whereby what was happening to you at the beginning of the pandemic, pandemic things have changed for you. And how does your organisation become aware of that and how do they support you um, in terms of tokenism how do we avoid it for me it's really around having the leaders in the right positions so um, I, I think it's around I think you just need one person to get into that chief executive role who is properly passionate about diversity and inclusion and they will then create their team around them um, of people that are also um, passionate but again, I think, I don't want to put a downer on it, but I still think we're still a long, long way away from that. And it's really about, you know, it's not about going to a conference and talking about things. It's about the things that you do. It's the planning. It's the awareness. Um, it's all those things that you're constantly thinking about in terms of making sure everyone's needs are included. And it is the most difficult thing because the easiest thing is to put the broad brush, isn't it? In terms of avoiding tokenism, I think what the sector really needs is the leaders in place who are, um, you know, genuinely passionate about diversity and inclusion and about the benefits that diversity and inclusion brings and, and the complexities as well. So I think we get tokenism because we haven't got those leaders in those positions. And I think that's where the challenge is because, you know, people need the status quo to retain the power that they have so if you're going to get somebody in a new position who is you know genuinely passionate about this sort of work 
you know, they're probably um, going to be very different to the people that have been sitting around the table at the top of an organisation for a long time. It's almost like infiltrating um, the sector and, and getting the people into those positions. And I think until that happens and you have that genuine leadership, you will have tokenism. So you will have, you know, inclusion leads like myself going to senior managers and asking them for photo opportunity for LGBT History Month or Black History Month, when actually you want them to come to you and say, what are we doing? How can I help? And that's the change around that, that proper leaders, the type of leaders that you, yourself and myself need in this sector. That's where, that's when and how we avoid tokenism. So again, we're quite far from that. Yes, <laughs> we're making progress. And we are, we are. <laughs> I think one way that we can kind of fit the argument on its head is what is a sector missing out on by failing to address EDI in a comprehensive way? So for example, um, Ramadan, um, the holy month for Muslims around the world. And as part of that month, many many of those that follow the Islamic faith, they donate 2.5% of their annual wealth to charity. Yeah. And I believe that organisations in our sector, progress has been made, they have come far, but some organisations can do a whole lot more to engage different sections of society. And if you think about it, 2.5% of X number of people's annual wealth is a lot of money potentially. So perhaps part of the conversation is about flipping the argument on its head and saying, we value EDI, but what opportunities are we missing out on? Leaders and organisations can really ensure that EDI is done in a comprehensive way because that it makes business sense to do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think that, you know, by not having diversity and inclusion embedded in organizations we will miss out on opportunities to raise money basically so you know having that one size fits all approach means we're only targeting you know a very similar samey sort of demographic and we're missing out on sections of of society who want to be engaged with with charities like ours i think as well as we move um we move on i can imagine corporates becoming more and more um, interested in EDI and charities. So I think with the charity sector, we've, be, we've become very complacent where we're sort of, yeah, well, we're a charity, we're right on, our values are sound. But actually corporates in terms of their social responsibilities, I think they're going to start needing more than that. They're going to start needing to know that charities, you know, aren't discriminating discriminated against their staff that they have the policies and procedures and the behavior in place that corporates are now expected to have whereas maybe many years ago they didn't you know it wasn't such a big thing so I think definitely in terms of um, you know um, income it makes perfect sense in terms of um, you know you can't have diversity without inclusion so if you're going to have a quota in terms of different demographics and you employ people and the culture isn't there, then people are going to leave. It's going to cost you money. It's going to be recruitment costs. It's going to be, you know, that never ending cycle of, of in the door and out the door type thing. So there's those sorts of, um, you know, business, um, business case um, that makes sense. And 
the one I guess if we relate it to children as much as possible is that you know take action for children for example 11% of the children that access our services are of a BAME background even though we're not using BAME um, they're of a BAME background but we only employ 6% staff of a BAME background so actually when young people are children and young people are coming to our services they're not seeing people that are like them so they're not seeing role models and, and you know how how included do they feel um, if there's nobody around that that looks like them or, or from a similar background um, so are we able to meet the needs of of, of all children that, that come to us and you know from a gender point of view we you know, our data tells us we work with more males than females, but we're 86% female. So, you know, there's the whole thing around having more men in social care. And what do we do to, to attract men to social care? Because the issue is attracting men. Um, and there's a whole, whole big stream of work to, to do on that as well. Your point about role models is so important. I don't think that can be underestimated. Mm -hmm. Because when you're growing up, um, and you're in your education, for example, or you're doing voluntary work, seeing what career you want to pursue, role models form a very important part of that decision-making process. If you see yeah. somebody like you in, in an organisation or in a role of prominence, you're more likely to feel as if they have a place for you too. Yeah, and, and then, then like getting breaking free from stereotypes. So, you know, social care is, is considered to be a very female um you know um role but i've been thinking about this recently i've been thinking right where are men that already work with children well in cardiff they're in rugby clubs and then football clubs and they're in boxing clubs they're already working on a voluntary basis um with children um so how do we flip that to say to men actually why don't you come and work with us even if it's you know, it's not a full-time role, maybe if it could be, you know, residential work or, or something like that. Because these people are already, these men are already working with children. Completely agree. I couldn't agree with you more. And I just wanted to touch on a point that you raised about quotas. I wanted your opinion on that, whether you think it's a, ne a necessary measure, whether it should be a short-term measure imposed, and whether truly creates cultural shifts that we're talking about. Or again, does it lend itself to tokenism? Well, I've benefited from a quota because when I stood for election in 2012, I obviously had to be selected by my local party. And it was basically, if there was two councillors um, for that area, then the party said one had to be female and one had to be male. So um, I benefited from a, from a quota. But actually what had happened before that selection meeting was that somebody turned up to say, I so strongly disagree with um, this quota that I'm actually not going to vote. So um, my, uh, my opinion based on my own experience and my experience in this role is that quotas uh, tick a box. So you can say you've got a quota, but it's really about culture. So unless you've got that culture, quotas for me are tokenism. Although I do understand why organisations do it. But for me, you've got to look at much further. All right, you might have a diverse team come in. You might, have, But unless you've got somebody who fully understands that, it's never going to work anyway because you're never going to have that inclusive culture. So ideally quotas, yes, but in reality and in my experience, no. Yeah, 
I think I would definitely agree with your, your stance on that. And you mentioned about the corporate sector. Mm-hmm. It seems, I'm not too close to the detail, but it seems from the research that I've done that the corporate sector is taking a very proactive role in ensuring EDI is embedded within their organisations and cultures partly because it makes business sense. If you're an international corporate, for example, and you work in Dubai, you work in India, you work in Brazil, you work in Russia, these are emerging economies. It makes sense for you to have a more or a more proactive EDI culture and approach. And, and that's the irony is, as a sector, we have these strong values which we're so passionate about and we do what we do because we love it. However, on the flip side, it seems that the conversation around EDI um, has stalled somewhat when you compare it to the corporate sector. So I just wanted you to share a little bit of insight and shed a light up on that. And also if you could provide some examples where effective EDI, whether in the charity sector or in the public or private sector, has, has driven change and essentially resulted better outcomes for beneficiaries or customers in the private sector. Uh, so... Um... I've never worked in the private sector, but from, from, what I can, <laughs> from what I can see, you know, there seems to be resource and time, um, you know, invested in, in EDI in a lot of different big corporate organisations. And the big corporates always do really well, for example, in the Stonewall Workplace Equality yeah. Index. But I'm not convinced how much of that is, isn't tokenism to be honest because how do you even measure um you know how an organization treats its staff how is staff feel um you know what the turnover rate is i think a lot of um private sector organizations are superficially doing a good job but how do we really really know and actually as a customer going into your local bank you know, you might see a rainbow flag or something like that, but what difference does it make to you as a customer, really? You know, are you going to continue banking there or are you going to go, you know, what, what difference does it make? Um, I think in the, in the charity sector, um, I'm just going to use an example from Action for Children because I, I know anecdotally that, that this is, has made a difference, but um, I think it was 2016, I can't even remember what year it was, but that was when I first started the breakthrough work, which was really around saying to colleagues, look, what is it like being a black person in the organization, Asian person, you know, how does it feel? And bringing people together where they could have these honest discussions that were then fed straight into the executive leadership team. And that's where the breakthrough network start came from and the breakthrough mentoring. And what that really did was put race and ethnicity on the radar of the organisation. You know, it's something that people are aware of as soon as they start in the organisation because they get an email that tells them of all the different networks that they can join. I know anecdotally it has made a difference to people. So I think it is a good example of where something has worked and people anecdotally feel good and they feel supported. There is much more to do around leadership and around those genuine conversations. How do you know that that person is experiencing an inclusive culture within that sub team or that sub um, part of the organisation? I think the sector has come quite far, particularly in the last few years. Charity So White, we had them on the podcast um, a couple of weeks ago. They've done tremendous work 
in a very short amount of time to highlight some of these issues and provide genuine solutions and work with organisations to come up with solutions. And at the Institute of Fundraising, the Change Collective Manifesto that was published mm-hmm. in late 2018, and I know the IOF is is really keen and, and it sees itself, now it's a chartered Institute of Fundraising and it sees itself very much as an important cog in that wheel to solve some of these issues. EDI, generally speaking, in society and in our sector has been had behind closed doors. And I hope to see this conversation had out in the open a lot more and no one being afraid to have these conversations because I think it's so important that we are just honest with one another because honesty equals progress. In many ways, and I don't want to compare it to the mental health um, issue at all, but mental health a few years ago, even five, six years ago, it was never talked about openly. It was all behind closed doors. It was something to be ashamed of. In the same vein, although the contexts are different, that equity, diversity and inclusion is is spoken about more openly within our sector. Mm -hmm. But we need to be honest with ourselves and understand when things are not going right as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Charity So White have done a great job in being totally honest and saying, hang on a minute, this sector is way too white, um, you know, and, and what are we actually going to do about it? And, and they've done a great job in, in, in raising that profile. And I know that they've got in with NCVO, um, you know, Institute of Fundraising. And that's great because I've seen that they've had the meetings on, on social media. It's the actions and the activity from those senior leaders um, that are really going to make the difference and if they've been able to make those relationships and change the activities and and stuff then it's a fantastic start and they've done a really really good job just wanted to say thank you for the opportunity for for having a chat i'm sure we could chat for many hours (laughs) um and i guess we'll we'll do our best to try and push things along at at action for children so thank you absolutely and siobhan it's an absolute pleasure to have you on you're such a great advocate not only with action for children but also within the sector. I would like to thank Siobhan for sharing her insights and experience with us today. A number of vital points were raised in our conversation. In particular, the importance of language when we speak about EDI, ensuring individuals' voices are heard, how tokenism can hold back our sector from achieving the cultural shift that will undoubtedly make organisations, and by extension our sector, far more effective, accountable and trusted by employees and the wider society. By having a more proactive EDI approach, we can take advantage of opportunities that we may currently be missing out on. It makes sense for us to lead this conversation, and it is the responsibility of each individual in organisations up and down the country to make our sector more equal, diverse and inclusive. I know that it is a challenging time for our sector and while COVID-19 presents us with many challenges, it also is an opportunity for us to reflect on areas that we have succeeded in and areas where there is more progress to make. In other words, a crisis is an opportunity for us to take stock take learnings and move forwards. As a sector, we are needed now more than ever. And we at Charity Chat would like to thank the thousands of employees and volunteers within the sector 
that are continuing to serve their beneficiaries. Thank you very much for listening, and that leads me to thank our corporate sponsors. Giant Squid Audio Lab, sponsoring our podcast kit. Magda Aksumit for our website design. RR Yard Photography for our pro bono images. And Forest of Fools, who have been playing throughout and are playing us out now. Thank you.